everyone and thank you so very much for joining me on another episode of Talking Cloud. Now you know this is where we talk about cloud, cloud computing, anything cloud, all things cloud because isn't that everything in our computing environments anyway? Cloud? I mean, what aspect of of computing doesn't involve cloud? I mean, it it's in everything we're doing from IoT to shifting data centers into the cloud, public, private, the list goes on and on. Now, you know I'm no expert, but I got a good line into a lot of great ones. And man, I'm so excited today because I get to talk to somebody that really, I think, has had uh, his hands deep into it for a long, long time. I mean, anytime you see the name Tandy on someone's resume back in the 90s doing support, you know, you know they've been around for a long time. And certainly Mike has a deep in experience with regards to support, network services, security, uh, all the way up the ladder into a long time at Cisco, was essentially director of professional services, a very key solutions architect for a long time, went to Visa. I mean, the guy's uh, pretty impressive. Gartner has now landed and is currently the service director it looks like service director, security architecture, and engineering. I guess I'll let him give all the details. But he's at a company called Trace3. I'm thrilled. I've only met him a short time ago. In fact, a mutual friend, my longtime friend, uh, Robbie Elliott, introduced me to him, said he'd be a great guest. And uh, knowing Robbie like I do, I know this is going to be a great session. I already had a brief conversation with Mike to meet him a week ago, and I'm Absolutely thrilled and excited to have him on the program today. Mike Morado, thank you very much for being here today. Oh, thanks for having me on. I'm excited to uh, to be here. Yeah, it's awesome. So, hey, I always uh, kind of put it up this way. Uh, let's uh, give the audience a bit of your Z-axis, if you will, some perspective on Mike. I mean, I kind of rambled off on your background, but maybe uh, you can give us a little bit more clarity there. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, well, it's kind of funny because I haven't actually used the word Tandy for quite some time. But uh, um, yeah, no, I've been in the game for about 29 years now. Uh, It'll be 30 years this September. Congrats. And uh, thank you. And I've just I've sort of climbed up the ladder. You know, I I got my uh, my early breaks uh, unpaid helping build my uh, high school's network back in the uh, very early 90s before Mm. networking was truly a discipline. Right. that was back when what the way I put that uh, is that was back when everyone was networking, although I guess it was post this era. You remember when everyone was networking, but they were all using their own protocol exactly. <laughs> or, or, exactly. or it wasn't their own. But there were so many varied that there really wasn't ever a threat of 
outside of my network like there is today, right? It was, Correct. I, I kind of say it was we were in our own little lake or pond as opposed to all of a sudden, boom, we're in the ocean with predator and prey. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. Well, and that even the cabling was different back in the because my first uh, my first uh, run of cabling was doing thick net and thin net. So uh, the old school where you had to put uh, connectors or terminators on the end of the wire, otherwise all the electrons dropped out right. of the uh, the wire. So <laughs> and remember what an emphasis we had on that aspect of the connectivity. The networking, oh, yeah. right? I mean, that was all about the networking. And it's interesting, right, how we've definitely, like cream, uh, floated to the top. It, it is funny how that's how that's worked out, and we discovered what did work and what didn't work. Uh, to make matters worse, I also got my start on uh, on token rings. So my first foray wasn't even on Ethernet, because uh, Ethernet was still an unfinished standard when we started. Uh, mm. At least 100 meg was. Yeah. Uh, but um, yeah, no, started out uh, doing that, impressed uh, a guy who eventually became my boss who ran uh, for, in Albuquerque, New Mexico, which is where I was born and raised. Uh, he ran uh, the Radio Shack Computer Center. So it wasn't just your everyday Radio Shack hobby right. shop. It was the actual computer center. And he's like, okay, whiz kid. Um, <laughs> Why don't you come run our, our upgrades desk? And so, you know, start off doing the installing the hard drives, installing operating systems, putting in network cards and loading up the netware drivers in your auto exec and config. And yeah. uh, from there, just uh, stayed at Tandy and various roles or uh, RadioShack.com, uh, I guess, is eventually what they, they settled on. By the time it was Tandy Corp and uh, did a stint at uh, Computer City and Incredible Universe and yeah. uh, then – Got got to the more more real world of computing and uh, yeah, well, that started was, my climb to the dot com eras. You know that was the you know what happened. I mean, I, I and I know you know this, Mike. But I was around. I helped open up an Apple dealership in 1983, and so. What we saw when Tandy and Computer City and CompUSA were out, that was really the the burgeoning bifurcation, if you will, when it went out of being a computer store that you went to and really became uh, a consumer commoditized appliance product, right, or value-added services. Right. Uh, No, and it – it was a crazy time because you know I've I've had a computer since the early '80s. My, you know, my dad got an old 8088. Um, I, I, at the time, it was really high tech. But mm-hmm. uh, you know, having a computer, even when I had my 386 and 486, that was still somewhat in the niche of of nerddom. If, yeah. if we're being honest, I mean, it's Completely. it just wasn't that to your point commoditized technology uh, that we had. Uh, and then uh, just to add more to the nerd cred is you know starting off with a 300 baud uh, acoustic coupler. So I was doing the modem <laughs> and the online stuff long before there was an internet. Yeah, um, yep. Dungeons and still... Dragons, bulletin oh. boards, man. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and the source. <laughs> yes, I remember them well. Mail, yeah. Yeah. good old Amazon <laughs> free discs as well, or yeah. not Amazon AW. Um, AOL. Yes. Yeah, it was crazy times. But um, yeah, no, and then and then sometime around uh, 94, 95, which uh, was uh, conversely when I was in college as well, we just we, we, we saw an explosion of, of computers coming online. That's when you started to see the, the dot-com 
addresses on the tail end of commercials. I still remember the first one I saw was for a Magnavox TV. Uh, and it says, find more information at Magnavox.com. And uh, you go there and it was just, you know, it was your stereotypical mid-90s <laughs> website with right. uh, complete with MIDI music. And, uh, <laughs> it's uh, a piece real... of paper that has now been produced electronically, <laughs> right? I mean, that, exactly. that, it's so funny. But that was remarkable, I'll bet, when you saw it. It's like, oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, it was it was interesting seeing technology grow up and something that that I had been doing, granted, via a different format because uh, HTML and, and browsers weren't necessarily a thing in the late 80s and the early 90s. It was more the mid 90s that those really came to their maturity. And also just want to throw out there, remember paying for Netscape Navigator, twenty four ninety nine to buy the box of, of Netscape before right. it became free. But, um, you know, seeing that come to life and then seeing a lot of the advantages that I had had as someone who had adopted computing and and just uh, electronic communications for years become sort of the new standard, especially when I was in college, and seeing that transition from having to go to the professor and wait your turn in line to uh, being able to send your professor an email um, or go to the professor's uh, homepage, as you know everyone used to call it back then, and and, and get the lesson plans or right. understand what was talked about in class that day, or even transforming news groups and NTP groups. To, to be in you know study groups where people could upload their notes uh, it became a thing and it was it was really cool it was brand new it uh, wasn't quite to the uh, the craziness that we have today obviously but um, it was it was interesting seeing that all come to fruition it was kind of fun being on the front end of that heck yeah man I mean that's one of the things I I always say my Andy Warhol uh, 15 minutes of fame in this industry was that the first Macintosh computer that Alaska Airlines and Warehouser and a handful of other companies, the first person they bought it from was me. I sold it to them. So, you know, that's kind of cool. You know, opened Apple's office in Anchorage, Alaska. Kind of fun. Right. Uh, but isn't it amazing how how things have changed? Okay, so then I noticed, you know, you did some stuff at Visa and you did some stuff at Gartner. Yep. Uh, kind of moved up the ladder continually, right? Yeah, you know, throughout the rest of the 90s, I did the dot-com thing, um, and um, then I went to Cisco for 13 years. I, I originally went to Cisco as an SE. I, I just saw the writing on the wall. Uh, I was doing a, uh, a company that we actually ran the original NFL shop uh, <laughs> way back in 2000, so we're, we're, we're going back 21 years here, uh, but um, we ran the original NFL shop. We ran uh, uh, one of the eyeglasses places. I forget the eyeglass company. They're still around. I forget if it was Pearl or or, uh, or one of those types, but more and more <laughs> retail eyeglass companies as well. We were in ASP, but I saw the writing on the wall. I had been jumping job to job to job like everyone else did in the dot-com era just because it was insanely profitable to stay somewhere for six months and then switch jobs and get a $30,000, $40,000 raise and do that over again. But eventually I saw the writing on the wall and um, had a friend at Cisco and he said, come on in. And I started off as an SE. And that was that was a shock to the system because I had a pretty, pretty fast rise through the ranks in the dot-com era just – you know, I had the networking skills, I had the system skills, I had the security understanding to go in something that was much more static and much more fixed in uh, in its scope at Cisco. Um, did the SE thing for about uh, two, three years, and then I switched over to the services side where I did delivery for a couple of years, and then I did a combination of delivery and leadership uh, for the last nine years of that, which I'm, I'm not going to lie, it, to this date – 
is still one of my favorite jobs. It's not not something I'd go back and do again, Mm -hmm. um, but it was something that I really learned a lot. I learned a lot about, um, you know, managing those projects, managing customer expectations, dealing with um, literally millions of dollars worth of both budget and kit and and the importance of making sure you're doing it right and the quality control of that, Um, really listening to and talking to customers to make sure you get uh, what they need right the first time versus delivering something and completely missing the mark. And unfortunately, I still see that happening in the market today, but um, it was something I took to heart back then. Um, And then just, you know, after 13 years, you know, you don't say somewhere 13 years and hate it. So I loved it, but um, it was just time to move on. Uh, The opportunity was right, and Visa had come after me uh, because I was doing a lot of work in the financial sector space, um, and they'd they'd gotten my name uh, through one of my contacts at one of the Canadian banks that I was working at while I was at Cisco, Um, and they said, come on in. Uh, they had me come in uh, at a senior director role, uh, running a lot of the security, the network security components of that, um, and eventually switched over to the security architecture and data protection team, uh, just kind of looking at the big picture. And you know, data protection is a big, a big thing over there at Visa, obviously, as it is with any any company, but especially in the financial services space and dealing with highly regulated data. Um, you know, we we did some cutting edge things. You know, we were doing cloud before cloud was really an acceptable thing to do in financial services. We're talking way back in 2013, 2014. Mm-hmm. The, the word AWS was incredibly taboo uh, amongst all the retail slash uh, commercial and wholesale banks. <laughs> uh, so the fact that a payment company was looking at it uh, was was pretty interesting. But um, a lot of lessons learned, which uh, I'll be happy to talk about here in a bit. But uh, you know, after uh, about three years at Visa, uh, there was a changing of the guard at the at the CEO level, and, and yeah, that, that happens. And sure. so the culture changed a little bit. Uh, new leadership came in, and uh, it just didn't feel right, like the right fit anymore. Gartner had come after me and said that, hey, you know, we could use an analyst, and I wasn't entirely sure that I wanted to go to be a Gartner. I just knew that at that moment, uh, Visa didn't feel like the right fit for me. Yeah. Uh, I went to Gartner, and I will say next to Cisco, Gartner was my favorite role. I was only there for for a year, um, but Gartner was great, and it really opened my eyes to the analyst community, which is really important when business decision makers are out there trying to look at the market and understand what's out there. Um, And admittedly, Gartner has a fluffy side. Uh, That's what we see with the magic quadrant and the hype cycle and all that. But they've also got a very deep tech side, which is where I worked, which was the Gartner for Technical Professionals. And they write Mm -hmm. the really detailed research papers. Um, You know, we're talking 30, 40 page long papers that probably no one reads, you know, front to back, but nonetheless covers some very uh, good topics in depth, um, as well as some consulting work there. Um, and then the crew that was at Visa, uh, a bunch of us had left, and a bunch of us then uh, decided to reassemble at a company at the time was called Vantiv. Uh, Vantiv then bought WorldPay and took the name. Uh, the WorldPay then took uh, got bought by FIS, and uh, as with most M&A, just the leadership of the old company was just not necessary, and uh, no harm, no foul. I'm not bitter about it. it wasn't my first M&A, but uh, took some time off. Unfortunately, it happened right at the start of COVID, so mm. it was not a, a great uh, from a timing perspective. Right. But um, ended up at uh, Trace Three, uh, which is a systems integrator, and uh, they asked me to come in and sort of revamp and run the uh, architecture engineering team over here and uh this is where i've been for almost six months now got it 
Got it. Wow, what a storied career, Mike. I mean, it's been a good one. You've, you've done a bunch of stuff. I can see where you and I could certainly talk for a while about the old days. So <laughs> let's talk about cloud. And you implied earlier you'd had some early lessons. Uh, long history with the with the cloud providers. You mentioned you've been using AWS back when it wasn't appropriate to say you were using them within right. a financial organization. It seemed. Yeah, well, and we'd actually even used I'd even used AWS when I was at Cisco before my time at Visa. Um, you know, some of the uh, some of the banks, and I, I'd worked with pretty much a who's who of the North American and, and Western European banks. Uh, you know, pretty much the top five in every region. So the, the the issue was, of course, is just who owns that data, the access to that data, and we just didn't have the tools that we have today that that help us with visibility, config management, uh, uh, just j- general data governance uh, as a whole things that we you know we don't dare let go to the cloud without having those programs in in place today so uh it was still very much the wild west to use that uh, euphemism a little a little loosely there but um you know private cloud was a thing still uh cisco and netapp had of course flexpod vmware had their whole software defined data center uh you know microsoft was toying with the idea of hyper v it was really wasn't a thing quite yet but uh they liked the idea and of course uh, good old-fashioned sun microsystems uh, mm-hmm. you know they had their virtual box which uh, eventually was uh an oracle offering now nowadays but uh you know we had we had some some cloud-based tooling to understand the basics of virtualization and how to keep secure systems separate from each other, how to protect that data, how to do things like tie-in identity. But there really wasn't a big, large-scale program for security and and virtualization quite yet. You know, people would use the word uh, Cisco, for example, sold uh, uh, not not the ASAV. I forget the name of it off the top of my head, but uh, Cisco did have a virtual machine firewall as an example, and then so did Checkpoint, and then eventually so did Palo. But they were very different devices back in 2010 than versus what we have today, which is just virtualized versions of the of the actual hardware hardware, or if anything, they're just delivering the virtualized uh, instances these days. So we just really didn't have that. We had different sets of tooling back then, and it wasn't as intelligent. It wasn't as integrated. Um, but if you look at the public cloud specifically, there was really nothing in that space outside of what um, you know Amazon specifically uh, was offering. You know, IBM kind of had their "quote unquote" cloud, but really back in 2010, 2011, it was it was a one horse show. It was right. it was pretty much AWS and as a rule, we just as financial services companies, it just was a big, huge no-no for us to even try to go in there because we couldn't we couldn't guarantee the data, we couldn't guarantee the privacy of that data, um, and we just didn't have the visibility quite yet. Right, right. Well, it was, I mean, really early back then. Yeah, very early, uh, for sure. And you know, it's interesting as you, I was listening to you, I was just thinking about and remind. In fact. I worked for what was really the industry's first purpose-built virtual firewall. It was a company, first they were called Vbricks, and then uh, Altor Networks was what they became, and then Juniper ended up buying them. Right. And uh, what, you know, your comments about um, the new capabilities needed new tools, right? I mean, we had to see vMotion and inter-VM communications. But when I think about 
cloud. I mean, we're really talking vernacular and in word choice uh, because that it's virtualization is arguably one of the key cores of the cloud. Right. Right. I mean, uh, and more people seem to remember that as an era. It's just interesting how cloud has kind of become this word we banty around. Uh, and really, it's compute somewhere else. And we've had that for a long time, haven't we? We, we have. Uh, you know, it's it, having having CPU cycles and storage uh, not in my data center or not local to my host. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It is really nothing new to that. Where I think that cloud really began to differentiate itself and, and become the term we know as cloud is a combination of elasticity. So the ability to to rapidly expand my adoption of, of a service while other people also do so without a degradation in service and, and being able to have that in a near instantaneous fashion. Uh, but also the integration of a lot of these toolkits, uh, and, and I can look at it from a, from a compute standpoint, I can look at this from a security standpoint, I look at this from an application standpoint, but nonetheless, it's it's all these services coming together in a way that is both distributed, uh, that is elastic, uh, and that is on demand, and I think that's really what what came to define cloud. But of course, the joke still persists is that uh, a cloud is just someone else's computer. Sure. Um, and but at the end no, of the day, point, that's still somewhat true. <laughs> it is. But your point, I think, in the days of the 3090, and you know, I was actually selling uh, in a previous podcast, I was talking about how British Petroleum uh, was a big IBM PC on every desktop, but they were a big deck. Uh, shop and in fact bought the first deck 9000 uh, on the planet and you know what was you know kind of going nerdy again you could tunnel an apple talk protocol inside of decknet and leverage what was then a global network before we had the internet we're talking right. you know middle 80s right right um, and so it was pretty extraordinary because i i did a demo and and the key was that i could could then demonstrate the user interface that all of us look at and expect every day. But back then, as you know, the user interface on a PC was DOS-based. Right. On a, a VT-52-100-200 terminal, 220, uh, it was not a whole lot better. <laughs> and it was, you know, really the Macintosh that had that interface that we all kind of are accustomed to. And yep. to be able to demonstrate how they could move and shuttle around their protocol, their packets, but do it, you know, masquerading with the Macintosh interface blew them away, uh, blew them away. And, and now... Um, it's kind of amazing how we've taken that for granted. But the benefits you talk about, Mike, I think are spot on. It's the agility. It's the elasticity. It's the heaving, breathing, almost seemingly alive right. uh, that that makes cloud different than that mainframe that really I ran out of memory and I had to buy more. 
right? right? It was still kind of in that modality of owning a really, really, really big PC. Right. Yep. Uh, it's true. Well, you know, it's funny you mentioned mainframes, though, because there are a lot of uh, a lot of parallels between what we're doing with cloud computing and what mainframes uh, had the potential to do. Yeah. Um, and and it's been interesting seeing that, just being that I've been around mainframes most of my career. I mean, uh, choose choose your bank if it's a big bank and they're doing payments or it's even insurance carriers. Um, they still make heavy use of mainframes. Absolutely. So Those big batch jobs, man, yeah, where they collect and that data all day. Yeah. They're, they're predictable. They're reliable. Uh, yeah. They're highly available. Um, and it doesn't matter if you throw one packet at them or a thousand packets at it. They, they're going to respond the same to each and every one in a very predictable pattern. But, you know, the point being is that, that you know, cloud is sort of – it is a bit of a controversial stance, I fully admit, but cloud really is that next iteration of what, what the vision of mainframes were supposed to be. Now, uh, you know, that's that's simplifying this uh, quite a bit, but, you know, mainframes had that on-demand CPU uh, availability. Sure. They, they were the original elastic computer. It's not like elasticity that I see at my AWS and Azure, but, you know, if I have an IBM uh, Xeos machine and I need more uh, more capacity, I, I just add more frames to it. Yep. Uh, if I need more storage, then I call up EMC or Pure and uh, attach a new a new SAN array to that. And that was that was the model that enterprises were using for a while. And now we've just shifted it. Now we no longer have the capital expenditures of of buying these gigantic boxes. Uh, instead, we have the opex of, of Amazon, Microsoft, and Google a ton of money every month. But right. uh, you know, at the end of the day, the, the model is, is – I'm not going to say the same, but it's, it's fairly similar as far as what it's able to deliver. You know, how it delivers is obviously very different. But right. uh, what it's delivering is is really not that far removed from what, what we used to do. Yep. No, you're exactly right. In fact, uh, on an earlier podcast where I had uh, Ed Amoruso, who was the past CISO from AT&T – and we were talking about uh, mainframes, and that was one of the things he welcomed the consolidation of compute that cloud is bringing, much more analogous, as you put, to the mainframe environment. It has right. its real advantages, right? And when you combine in what the capabilities now with uh, this uh, DevOps, DevSecOps, the, the whole notion of that elasticity and agility being implemented at the development level that's pretty exciting but it man is. the nerds are they're taking over the world <laughs> yeah all, all of us kids that were uh, doing bbs's and modems back in the 80s and then uh, our kids uh you know the millennials and, and gen z who are uh, who are out there and have really transformed everything to be code driven and yeah. that's that's just a big sh shift in my career you know that once upon a time if i was a network engineer network architect or, or security engineer you know doing everything as code was not really something that that we did we did we did config management which was its own sort of code, but it's nothing like a C-sharp or a job or anything like that. Right. And it was proprietary per vendor. But you know, now we've shifted everything to uh, where the generation after me has come in and they've, they're now delivering everything via code. Infrastructure is code. Config is code. And we're using the cloud to facilitate this move. And we're abstracting uh, the Junipers and the, and the Cisco's and the Aristos from the world and reducing them to, to code snippets that we leverage a platform like like an Ansible or a, 
basalt or a terraform or something like that to deliver it, um, you know, is, is has been a pretty big change. And Huge I think that's, change. It's I been mean, a really interesting change, but well, it's you know, <laughs> hasn't, fun to it, watch. hasn't it relegated uh, that next layer, if you will, that what used to be those highly proprietary hardware guys? They, I mean, that game's changing big time now. It, where, it, it is. I mean, now it's just what's your horsepower? Right. <laughs> you know, I don't care about your. I don't use a proprietary OS. I don't want. What's your horsepower? What What's right. your throughput? Right. That's it. That's true. Well, and it's you know it's also kind of changed the the, the barriers to entry because you think about uh, do you even go back to the year two thousand? Um, you know, to get a to get a good job in in networking or systems, you had to have your MCSE or one of the Cisco CC level you know, certs, whether CCNA, CCMP, CCIE. Right. Um, and it's not that those things aren't still important because you still have networks, you still have operating systems, but by by moving all these things to code, and you know, I, I look at my 13 year old son who's gotten become very proficient in both uh, Java and Python, is that even he now, as long as he knows the objects that he's trying trying to configure can just now generically call an interface from a programming language of his choice, whether again, it's Ruby or Python or, uh, or JavaScript. Um, and then we'll let the language take all the difficulty out of it. The, the compiler will say, Oh, well, this is a Cisco target. So I need, Oh, I need to call it this way. Right. But my son doesn't need to know that level of detail. And, uh, you know, it's sort of reduced the barrier of entry for other people to get into tech, which I think is a good thing. Yeah. Um, because let, let, let's be honest, so tech has been first and foremost a boys' club for yep. a long time. Yeah. Um, you know, it's largely been been a white boys' club, and there's there's you know that's just that's how it is. But I that's think changing anything, too. Yeah, it, it, it's it's rapidly changing, and I think part of this transformation that we're seeing in that that we are simplifying the stack and trying to use common interfaces for these things. I think it's really uh, really helped lower the barriers to entry, and I really think we can thank cloud or blame cloud, depending on your point of view, but thank cloud for getting us here because it's it's sort of returned this compute environment. I don't want to say to the people because I sound like a revolutionary, but yeah. you know, it's it's sort of brought this back to where anybody can get into it and do it now without having those four years of, of specialized education and uh, spending years on getting every cert in the book. And yeah. and again. I think there's value in certification. I think there's value in, in university-based education. But I think we are slowly but surely lowering the bend barrier to entry yep. and make it simpler for anyone to to pick this up and get into the, in, into this uh, this sort of uh, environment. Yeah, I would agree. And Mike, if you you know, let's go back a few years, uh, 30 years or so, we could see this cycle has occurred. Think desktop publishing. Right. right? Uh, I mean, that was revolutionary. And you had to be, you know, the owner of a Mergenthaler or a Linotronic or something like that that costs hundreds of thousands of dollars and understand how to how to actually even program it to print these high quality fonts and styles. Right. That right. game well, changed. And we well, saw it over and over in music. Right. I mean, it, it, I can keep going. Right. We've right. seen these cycles. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think we're seeing them come to a point where all technology and again, I, I, you know, the, the cloud, I think, is really what has helped deliver this. But, uh, you know, where where you no longer have to be um, this this 
very well trained uh, digital artist in order to to configure your newsletter, or yeah. you had to you know set up your your music production or your synthesis, or um, really even game programming has you know high end game programming still needs very specialized skills. But you know I've got my seven year old daughter sitting there making uh, you know checkers and and chess games using yeah. something like Scratch, and so it's again it's it's greatly simplified how people get into this yeah and yeah you don't need that you don't need to be the person who's the only game in town because now anybody can be, become one of the games in town and i think that's that's been a big benefit for us as a whole well certainly ubiquitous connectivity uh, SaaS, and yep. the ability to deliver at such blazing speeds the content you know, those are game changers, right? And certainly right. Uh, they've changed from a, a development perspective when I can have multiple releases in a day as opposed to a few in a year. Those, right. those are just additional changes. So right. one of the things I always like to ask is from from your experience – Give us some cautionary tales, maybe some recommendations on things that you've learned that you would caution those that are maybe uh, at earlier stages of their migration and evolution into the cloud. Well, I can tell you that the the most beneficial lesson that I learned, and thankfully I learned it before, again, cloud was was really becoming a big thing in the enterprise networks, is that um, it, it's a chance for you to reset and really rethink what, you're, what you want to deliver and how you want to deliver it. And I'll, I'll give you sort of a generic story. I'm sure they wouldn't appreciate me giving all the details. But um, <laughs> when I was at Visa, again, early adopters, we were thinking very hard about how do we get into the cloud? Um, and, you know, again, Again, I'll, I'll freely admit in 2013, 2014, we were still pretty naive about this sort of thing. But we decided to really copy and paste our corporate data center security policy and apply that to, to an AWS uh, cloud-based security policy. And it was a not only a spectacular failure, uh, financially speaking, we all got a very, very expensive education out of mm. this because we had to pull everything back. So my, my first and foremost advice to anybody – who hasn't made that jump to cloud yet is toss out the book that you've used in your traditional data center today and really rethink everything. You know, obviously I'm going to speak from the side of security these days and I'll tell my security practitioners out there, um, you know, don't, don't take the baggage that you have accumulated. And we've all accumulated baggage in our data centers. Uh, you joke about Apple Talk and DeckNet. Uh, uh, you know, I have found I found some IPX out there uh, mm. as soon as – as recent as four years ago. And that's wow. some old netware stuff. Now, I don't think anyone would try to copy that out there. But nonetheless, if you're doing an assessment of your data center and saying, oh, I still need to support IPX, well, you're, you're not going to find that in Amazon. So uh, get rid of that already, obviously. And that, that's a low-hanging fruit. That's an obvious one. But really, it's about rethinking your strategy and really allowing you to look at things like tool simplification and looking at how do I make my 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 business operation processes not even not even my technology processes just my 
business processes? How do I make them simpler? How can I leverage this this elastic, highly available, highly resilient thing uh, to make my business processes even easier? And that can be something as simple as how do I onboard new suppliers um, or, or or new partners? You know, through through an extranet. Can I can I use something rather than home run all these WAN connections to my data center? Can I create a partner portal that's on a different interface for my application in the cloud and onboard them that way? And that way, I can get my time to market quicker. Um, you know, I if I'm if I'm automating things like identity or you know creating those credentials and then granting access, I can do a lot of that automated in the cloud with largely a click of the button, which is something that not everyone has had done to get that maturity level in their enterprise yet. So it's about rethinking my tools. It's about rethinking my processes. And it's also about putting things in the cloud that belong in the cloud. I'm going to give a terrible example, but let's say that M365, uh, you know, Office 365 didn't exist. Let's say that Exchange Online was not a thing. Um, But in, in that world, you know, putting something like in your Exchange server on AWS would be a terrible idea. It's just really not built for that. That's that's not a good use of it. Right. Uh, but my web presentation layer, or maybe some of these APIs that I use to to run aspects of my business, well, that's a great use case uh, for, for a cloud-based environment. So things that are largely clientless, um, or it's using a browser as a client, uh, great use cases of that. Things that are traditional client server, where I've got a thick piece of software on my endpoint that's not a browser. You know, in this case, let's use that listing with the Exchange. So I've got Outlook, that's my client and then I've got exchange in the cloud that's really not a, a great use case can you do it of course you can do it yeah. um, but is that really getting you any benefit other than shifting uh, the burden from one location to another and and that's really what it comes down to is is I'm not really buying myself anything of that so it's about making sure that what you put into the cloud is both going to take advantage of that and that you realize a benefit whether it's velocity whether it's simplification whether it's uh, it's getting away from again the rest of the baggage that you have on premise that has either created a, a, uh, a, a security strategy that's really hard to get around or a, a networking strategy that introduces unnecessary latency or unnecessary hops. Getting that stuff out of your old school data center and put it into the cloud is really one of those those huge benefits. But again, I just need to stress it. It's about rethinking everything in your strategy, uh, but I could literally go off on just security alone because yeah. that's my bread and butter. Yeah, shake the etch sketch. That's what I always yeah, tell people. Pretty much. Literally, you know, it's we've, – we've, uh, Continued to, it seems, on-prem anyway, haven't erased the blackboard, but we've just kept adding to it and adding to it. And I think we're at a point where we kind of got to stop, clean it all, and start fresh. There are so many tools. If you make the mistake of just jumping in, dragging along that trail of old tools, thinking this is going to work with that field of view right those right. those glasses so to speak you're going to mess up Absolutely. Well, and, and, and you're not going to get – you're not going to realize the benefits yeah. of, of why you're moving to the cloud in the first place. And you're just taking the problems you had in your existing data center and you're now shifting them to the cloud, which may actually even amplify it. And that's that's what we experienced when I was at Visa is that we tried to uh, just generically put some, some systems that had nothing to do with payments themselves. So we never put customer data in the cloud mm-hmm. uh, at that time. I don't know what Visa has done since I've left. But um, you know, it was mostly just like reporting systems and 
huge batch jobs that were in the back end because we we didn't have the ability at that moment to expand our on-premise data centers. Uh, but we we looked at some some just basic reporting functionality and, and batch jobs moving out there. But we, we made the process worse uh, because myself and I was, I was the, the team lead on the security side that did this. So I'll take the blame for it. We just, you know, we said, well, this is how we do it here. This is how we're going to do it over there. Sure. And of course, this is how we've always done it is one of the worst answers you can give, especially for security and wow. especially with new technology. And you know, Although that's, one. you know, in your defense, I guess, Mike, let's face it, man, a uh, couple of decades and then some, we did things the same way with very few significant transformations. This that's whole true. thing that that Amazon invented, you know, I think it's an interesting point to make. They invented this environment out of need. Right. You know, and if you really analyze what Amazon was doing and the pressures they were feeling, they solved business problems with this technology. It's really extraordinary. But I think it's fair to say they didn't drag all the old stuff from their on-premise data center to come up with this new vision. And so I think that just really highlights the critical need to shake the Etch-A-Sketch and make sure you plan, plan, plan. That's the other thing that I think people sometimes forget because things like identity, right, Mike? I mean, in, in the cloud, identity takes a much broader role, doesn't it? I, I would argue that identity and data protection. So it's not just cryptography, but it's just it's it's general data governance. So where my data is at, identifying that data, protecting that data. I would say that identity and data protection are more important than your traditional perimeter defenses, which makes up a bulk of your security program at, at large enterprise data centers. So you think of the firewall, the threat prevention, um, your know, slash IPS and your WAFs and all that. And, and don't get me wrong, those are important in certain cases, but they have less importance in the cloud than identity was. And, and you look at, uh, there's been a handful of companies over the years where they've had uh, their, their credentials compromised and either the company was deleted you look at code spaces is a great example of that um or all that data is lost all the backups are lost and uh you know you're basically erased from aws or or azure or gcp um that makes identity even more critical especially around that billing account or those privileged accounts because i can do things from home without actually breaching your perimeter because I can reach AWS, I can reach Azure from here. If I've got your credentials and you don't have proper security around that or uh, proper ways to, to, to limit how certain privileged identities are able to get into my environment, um, I can do some pretty significant damage. And for, you look at all the companies that are born in the cloud these days, yep. um, I can erase you and get you gone. So well, in fact, I mean, port- from anywhere yeah. on the planet – Right. right. I mean, that's the thing. And in one of my other presentations, I would tell people, quoting the late, great Yogi Berra, right? It's deja vu all over again. And what I'm referring to was how sprawl was a problem the first go round with virtualization. Yep. 
right? Oh, geez, I didn't know he was doing that. But in every instance, it was in your environment. That was your ESX server, and you finally got the tools to give you the visibility. Now... (laughs) we're talking a little bit uh, higher propensity of sprawl, wouldn't you think? Uh, Absolutely. Well, that brings up a great point because sprawl is still a problem in the cloud, uh, especially because it's on demand. And so me as an end user, oh, it's, it's, you know, in my mind, it's free. I know it's not free, but I'm not paying for it. Uh, How expensive can it be? So, (laughs) you know, sprawl is still a problem, which is why when you mentioned earlier, when you go to the cloud, having that plan in place is is critical. And, and I'm, I'm not bagging on developers at all because developers make the world go around. But uh, I think it's important that you get you know the CIO and the CISOs organization uh, to lead on this uh, because developers want to make their lives easier and they yep. want to use the tools that can enhance their product uh, rapidly uh, and get those multiple releases out per day, per week, per month, whatever it might be. Uh, but at the same time, those tools might have either added attack surface um, or have uh, inadvertent data exposures uh, that can get you in trouble. So, you know, while yes, you know, going to the cloud can be a great thing and uh, uh, you know, it's, it, there's a certain level of ease of access to it. It's also making sure that you're doing it in a controlled fashion. Uh, Not because you want to be a blocker, uh, quite the opposite. I believe security and infrastructure can be enablers for this. It's just setting up the guardrail and making sure that that we're using the tools correctly because just you know not everyone's going to be security conscious and that's yep. that's what it is but yep. um it's you funny know, it's making- i gotta just mention so previous podcast had tj gonen who heads cloud security products and right. the, you know one of the things he likes to say is you know he doesn't like the term guardrails he doesn't, well, that's true. He, he doesn't, he, no, but hang on. Uh, he likes he, paved roads, you know, to yeah. kind of, you know, get them off of the gravel roads, pave a road for them. Uh, they're yeah. going to be able to go faster on that paved road. I really think it's both. I it really is. think it's both because especially with drift and, and let's stay in the uh, vehicle analogy. I mean, if I'm going around a corner at a very high rate of speed, um, it's there's there's G forces that are just doing all they can to pull me off that road, right? <laughs> right? I mean, and so developers are moving at the speed of cloud. Those guardrails, you know, if they have to run up against them, at least they can keep that forward momentum but stay on the pavement. I I think that there's place for both. I guess is what I'm suggesting. I, I and I agree. I think it's uh, it's it's you know. The infrastructure and security folks setting that up, that that on-ramp so that developers can get their car on the road. And then when the developers realize that, hey, this this one-lane road might need to become a two- or a three-lane road, uh, it's important that that those conversations occur. Um, And it's important that security and infrastructure stays on top of that, which I think is probably the biggest sin that security organizations have done. And look, I did it. I did it at Visa. Uh, I did it at WorldPay. It was very, very hard to stay ahead of developers uh, because they're seeing those 
new tool releases the yeah. day that they happen. Yep. And we won't see them until someone goes, hey, by the way. Did you see how Mike implemented that new tool? <laughs> right. I mean, that's how you find out about it, right? Right. Uh, somebody exactly. says, hey, it's so cool. Do you see it? I mean, remember when virtualization came out, Mike? I'll, oh. I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it. Chris came into my office and he said, hey, take a look at this. And he steps on, grabs my keyboard, rap, tap, taps a little bit. And the next thing you know, you know, I see he's redirected and now he's booting an appliance. Yeah. I, I was stunned because up until then, we had to pay for those appliances that got shipped to us. And they had right. RMAs and they had returns. And we had big customers in India that we had cross-shipment agreements with. And surprisingly, we would cross-shipment but not always receive the returns. Right. You know, It had huge cost consequences. And when I found out we had a license to print money, because that's what really <laughs> virtualization was, but I mean, it was really extraordinary. And now when I hear about pets and farm animals, right? That analogy, right? A, a yep. pet is something you keep and nurture and take care of. Uh, the cloud's a farm animal where, you, you know, you kill it and you get another one. <laughs> I like that one. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard, I imagine you have of, you know, the cycle used to be you'd you'd patch, you'd update. And now literally it's just tear down, rebuild because you can script it all. It can all be based on infra as code. You know, you start fresh every day. Yeah. Well, that's been one of the greatest boons of, of virtualization in general, but uh, the evolution of cloud and, and, the, and the technologies that came with it, especially containers, is that the whole concept of attack surface management, which includes vulnerability management and patch management, has uh, become greatly simplified because now, I'm no, to your point, I'm no longer patching systems. I'm patching gold images, and the next time I refresh those containers or those virtual machines, uh, they're getting the latest... Uh, image yeah. that gets uploaded into that space. So I already know I'm getting patched and I don't have to sit there and worry about uh, when am I going to patch this system and take it down because more than likely I've got a, a, a cycle in place where I know that every Sunday night, for example, uh, I'm going to I'm going to switch from my blue side to my green side on my container environment uh, or I'm going to flip all these VMs. I'm going to switch my load balancing to go to the standby. I'm going to refresh the primary and then next week I'm going to switch back to the primary and my standby side is going to get its, its patches as well. So yep. it, it has, it is so simplified that, but absolutely in that tear down the environment, rebuild it, and uh, off you go and continue with that new functionality. It's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, yeah, it's, it's just, you know, going back to the comments and discussions we were uh, having earlier when we literally would have to see if anybody was on the phone and and, and then go through the whistle and scratch and, and pray and hope that you see a connect uh, to to where we are today, where we're yep. we're literally uh, building new data centers, new environments, boom, uh, just like that. You know, I wanted to touch on one uh, thing that you mentioned earlier, uh, because I think this is a problem that is going to uh, manifest itself and surface itself much, much more as we move on into this cloud-native world. And I'm specifically talking about the plausibility of access because of many different services, microservices, components need to talk to one another to make 
an application, in quotes, where before it was in my data center, it was monolithic, it's all right there. Yeah, and that's where concepts like zero trust start to start to come into play. That's not the only solution. I don't think zero trust by itself would have uh, fixed that. But you know, we, we look at these new operating models that are coming about because of the result of, of cloud. You look at uh, just user access. You know, the Cisco's, the Force Points, and the Palo Altos of the world. They call it sassy. Yeah. Um, you know, so that's that's one way to, for me as the enterprise, to govern how my users connect, make sure that all my my users are connecting in a similar fashion, and that in turn leads to zero trust, where I can now make real-time decisions based on you know where they're coming from, the type of device they're using, uh, time of day, you know, environment yep. they're trying to access, and now I can make real-time decisions about about what sort of permissions I want those users to have. You know, if right. I log in as, as an administrator, um, you know, sort of like a network admin or a server admin, then I get certain rights and certain protocols through the firewalls and able to do these things. Whereas if I'm just an app developer, I get a completely separate set of, of, uh, of entitlements that right. I can then use to do that. But I think that we're still as an industry figuring out how to deal with with some of these, some of these things, and you use the Capital One attack, where uh, there's a little bit of insider, a little bit of carelessness in general, um, and you know, you, you and see a that new paradigm, a, a completely yeah, new world that you know is arguably still getting figured out. That, you know, sometimes we underestimate how complex this has become. Look at you know just the whole uh, solar winds thing, right? I right. mean, it was pretty amazing. But this is where you know a lot of people don't ever. If if there was a a massive uh, ship off the coast of California and it had a a foreign logo, we would be responding in a big way. Right. Right. If it was Iran or China or something. Right. And what I think is amazing is how few people on the planet uh, really have no clue how fierce and how frequently that happens in the world of cyber. It's, It's every day, all the time. Well, I think it's compounded by the fact that uh, you know we're we're always in in the middle of a new cycle, but but this cycle specifically, which is really how we operate. So this is the first major shift in an operational cycle that we've had in about a decade when virtualization first came, and virtualization yep. was that disruptor, and now cloud is that that next disruptor, and that and we'll have one after cloud. But I think we're we're right in the smack in the middle of it, where I've got one leg in the old world with those monolithic technologies and I've got that hard exterior and and soft interior and I've got the other leg in this cloud environment where all my security paradigms have always used they're not necessarily out the window but their importance and their focus has changed and so as a result um, I don't have a clean one size fits all approach where I can say it's lumpy yeah to go from the 26 controls that you so seamlessly had assembled in your on-prem and then trying to uniformly apply those same fact is they don't even exist uh, you know in all instances so i totally get it and this is i think going back to your earlier point right to really think it through and plan ahead of time and not go in assuming you're going to do it like you used to do it. Right. 
Exactly. And that's, and, and that's at the end of the day, that's still going to be the, the guidance is throw out the way that you've always done it. And let's think of a new way without this baggage. Yep. Um, and, and even let's think of new, new ways to use the tools. And I'll give a great example of that. Most large enterprises, so companies of about 5,000 or so users or more, which granted is not a huge overall population of the companies out there, but those that are like that, they, they wield a lot of power and they, they buy a lot of stuff. Um, those types of companies, 5,000 users or more, tend to have six to eight dozen different uh, security tools. And this has been validated by, I remember Symantec was yep. the first one to put it out. Uh, you know, Gartner and Forrester have had similar versions of sure. those reports with different numbers. But, you know, if, if just from security alone, I'm using, you know, 60 to 80 different tools, um, that's kind of silly. And so me going into the cloud is the way for me to go in there and cut it down from 60 or 80 different tools down to maybe a dozen or two dozen tools that, that not only only integrate together, which is the key piece here, is making them work together to have better coverage. Yep. Uh, but again, simplifying my operations. I shouldn't have to go to four different consoles uh, to change a rule. Yep. Um, I should be able to script it. I should be able to push it, and I should be able to validate it, and I'm done. Um, and and hopefully it's 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 touching those other systems that are affected by this as well in that same process. So this is a way to to simplify that. And I think until we get to that point, which we're probably still a good three or four years away from that, I see 2024, 2025 as being when this cloud bonanza finally begins to die down, and we start looking at the next thing after that. And, of course, no one knows what that is quite yet. Uh, but I think until then, we're going to be in this this nebulous space where we're throwing a lot of tooling at the problem, but it's only putting Band-Aids on it. And part of it is is us, the practitioners. Part of it is the clouds, the cloud vendors themselves. And part of it's just the tooling infrastructure and making sure that rather than everyone being a me too or just doing one part of the puzzle, uh, you know, you've got companies that are really being progressive and looking at the big picture picture and trying to deliver on all of it, maybe not being the best on all of it, but uh, yep. looking looking ways to simplify it and uh, really helping customers you know, make that jump to the cloud in a way that is controlled, but at the same time gives them that flexibility and velocity to do what they need to do, but with the assurance that the CISO and their team can, can sleep at night saying, okay, well, we're, we're, we should be safe. We shouldn't have these breach issues right. that we've been concerned about in the past. And that's right. whoever comes up with that first is going to be able to print money. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that I'm a, a a big proponent of and big believer of is that the industry needs to step back. You know, so often we say, hey, let's dig into the grains of sand. Let's go into the details. And I think we need to step back because to your point, 60, 70 different products, you know, even 20, 30, 40 different products when we're talking about different UIs, different inter all the associated things. And that's not even considering the relationship, the contracts, the legal, the termination, right. the shipping, receiving, accounts payable, accounts receivable, support, I mean, on and on and on. This is why we really are due for some consolidation. And I would also dispute that back in the days when I carried around a phone from Nokia <laughs> and a laptop from wherever, it was a different world. 
Okay. But the world we're in today, I'm carrying around a supercomputer that has an app that's a phone that is connected to the same data and information and and tools that my laptop, my desktop, my tablet are all connected to. So, So something's changed. And what I believe has changed is now because of this hyper connected world we're in, you know, the real prize is not the pictures on my phone, Mike. The prize is what my phone is connected to because I use it for work and home and play. And 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 so I really think we would benefit from harmonizing, from homogenizing our defenses behind a common threat intelligence. It's not to say that any one vendor can do it all. I think we all know that the minute you start to look at the vendors that offer a broad enough portfolio that makes it worth considering, the herd goes from three, four thousand down to maybe ten. And I think that that's got to be the trend. Look, if you did it with us. Checkpoint, you're still going to have to go and buy a SIM and buy some other tools. We don't do it all, and no other vendor does it all. But I really – I think that there's going to be some trends towards that. And I know a little plug for uh, the hand that feeds me. We've really (laughs) made some very, very exciting announcements uh, just at the beginning of the year to unify and harmonize your, your, your network, your cloud, and your workforce. Well, right. I think I think Checkpoint's really, you know, gotten on top of that and, you know, some of the competitors is that that we're moving away from this this product centric approach where yep. buy my firewall and yep. then later on we come back and buy my IPS and we come back later, buy my VPN. And now instead, you know, we're selling a platform. Yeah, and I, I really see that as being the enabler to simplify, uh, especially once again looking at cloud. Is that I'm going to buy a a, a platform that deals with my traditional security. Well, that cloud. Deals with not to interrupt cloud. you, Mike, oh, right. but but cloud has become this incredibly broad platform. It has the need for a tool that covers everything from, you know duplicate my network perimeter kind of uh, security all the way to uh, shifting left and and infra as code and kubernetes you know there's so much there and the same thing is occurring right you're seeing this right. fragmentation on point solutions that this solution is great for doing code analysis without any agents before you push it out for uh, doing serverless or infra as code for example right. right and some of those tools are really cool um, but I think they're going to have to become a platform, aren't I mean, I don't know. It, 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 what's your thoughts on that? Because it seems like we kind of uh, could really benefit from having a platform, but then there's always going to be something that somebody does that you're going to want, I suspect. Right. 
Well, and I think that's that's the hard part as a consumer. And I look at this being as part of a systems integrator is that, uh, you know, I can I can come to the table with three platforms uh, or th- three different vendors, and one of those vendors offers everything soup to nuts that you think you could possibly need, but the truth is is that uh, either maybe that platform doesn't perform as well in the areas that are important to that customer, or yeah. it's got a bunch of stuff that they just don't need, um, and they can get away with this much smaller boutique vendor that only does two things, but they do those two things better than everybody else. And then on top of that, that meets those customers' needs. But I think you're right, is that you're going to need those platforms that, that, you know, whether I'm looking at infrastructure or whether I'm looking at at backends and the whole DevSecOps process, because there's still a a rather large disconnect between the two. Uh, But I, I see the need for platforms being for both of those separately today, and then eventually those platforms merging because we're already seeing that marriage, but we're not seeing it enough, I think, that anyone has truly invested in this unified platform that's doing traditional infrastructure, or in this case, cloud infrastructure, and then marrying it with the with the dev pipeline and, and the development uh, cycles itself. You, you see some playing around in that space. Yeah. There, there certainly are a lot of vendors in that space, yeah. but we're not seeing the maturity and the completeness of vision yet, and I think that's where what we'll see next from a product standpoint over the next 18 months. It's going to be interesting to see that that evolve. Yeah, it's uh, the one thing I, I've said this for a long time, Mike, is I think one of the most exciting things about this industry is no matter when you're getting into it, you're getting in at the beginning of something. Right, absolutely. A- a- and it makes it really, really a lot of fun. So, right. listen, this has been awesome, and you and I could go for a we while. Could. So we I know could. I want to have you back. Um, but uh, for the sake of your time, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna say thank you very very much. I really enjoyed our conversation. Uh, again, it's really fun talking to somebody that's uh, had the tenure in the industry, so that you can just have some really fun conversations. So thank you Absolutely. so very very much for joining me, Mike. Well- Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. And uh, this was great. I, this was a good time. No, so the I one thing, you know, I did want to make a plug and I apologize. Now, okay. if I've got someone listening or we've got clients, uh, I mean, Trace 3, you guys are the go-to guys that really can kind of be that agnostic neutral party to help me, aren't you? We, we try to be. We try to be. You know, we've got uh, a focus in, in the cloud DevSecOps dev space. That's my uh, my partner, Jimmy. Um, and then you've got me on the cloud infrastructure side, and we've got teams that, that work for us. And we uh, are working really hard to making sure that people are making the right decisions. We're taking that experience and uh, trying to translate that. But, you know, we also go beyond that. We're looking at the zero trust. We're looking at the SASE uh, architectures. We're, we're looking at how do we make business simpler uh, how do we how do we use technology to make business simpler? And uh, uh, yeah, it's it's a big thing we pride ourselves on. So yeah. we're it's a competitive market space though. Sure. There's, there's a lot out there, but uh, we think we do it pretty well. And uh, I appreciate the plug there. Yeah, well, no problem. I saw Cohesity was one of your partners, and in fact, yep. I had uh, Michael litchen on the program just uh, last week so well hey mike thanks again thank you for having me on i really appreciate it ladies and gentlemen uh another one's in the books this was a really good one uh i told you you were gonna enjoy mike the guy is obviously uh very very knowledgeable and 
long in the tooth, as they say in the world of cloud and a lot of other computing environments. So with that, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very, very much for joining me. I really appreciate you being uh, here. And if you like what you're hearing, please tell your friends, share, subscribe, like, and we'll look forward to having you back on the next episode of Talking Cloud. 